this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down with guest Tiberius to break down Right to the City by Henri Lefebvre. We built this city. We built this city. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna start the show. Not one step back, baby. Yeah, it's gonna. That's gonna be the intro, I think, instead of the na- international. That's good. That's good. I, I was thinking maybe cities by the Talking Heads, but we already used Talking Heads for the Ted Kaczynski episode. Yeah, they might. They might know. They might start to notice what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. So this week, it's not one step back. Uh, we basically read from Writings on Cities Right to the City. and uh, By Henri Lefauve. Yeah, how, is that, how do we pronounce that? Because I'm, ter- I'm always terrible with these French names. In order to help us, we're going to just straight up bring on the person that commissioned this episode. Welcome, Tiberius. Hello, I'm Tiberius Victoria. What's I up? Think, Thanks for coming I on. think... This is the fr- yeah. Thank you for coming on. I think this is the first time we've had the person on who requested the episode. Am I wrong about that, Jake? I think I think you are, but I can't remember the exact uh, specific instance that we had. I mean, it's necessary sometimes because you know I feel like I, you know I don't want to fall into playing a guessing game of like why we were asked to read this um, or what yeah. what the takeaway is supposed to be necessarily. Um, not that there always has to be one, but for some reason mentally, like you kind of assume there is. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, well, of course there is. Yeah. Like, and I remember bringing people on to help us with the text that somebody requested, but I don't remember bringing the person on. And I mean, that's probably, you know, you're probably right. But like I said, Swampside chats memory hole. Don't remember. Wait, so, so someone in chat saying it's Lefebvre. Is that correct? Yeah. Lefebvre. Lefebvre. It's not uh, Brett Lefebvre. Lefarve. I mean, if you want to <laughs> anglicize it, it's Henri Lefebvre. Henri Lefebvre. Henri Lefebvre. Yep. Okay. Yeah, the B throws me off. Uh, but oh, I think it's a silent B. It's a silent B. I mean, that makes the most sense. I don't know why I didn't think of that. So yeah, Henri Lefebvre, basically right to the... So this has actually been a dude that has been on my list of stuff to read for a long time. But I think because I read the people that he taught... Uh, which is, I think, Raul Vonnegheim and Guy Debord. I guess I kind of felt like I didn't have to read this, which I know that's kind of a stupid way to think about it. I mean, I think that literally, but I thought that in terms of what I actually ended up doing. I can say that I thought that I had read him because yes. I had read Guy Debord yeah. and Raul Vanheim, and it actually took me until right now to realize, nope, never read this one before. Yeah. Yeah, he's for me at least, he's one of those guys. Like, yeah. You know, and that's kind of a stupid thing. I know Kevin Smith once said he, he felt like he didn't need to watch like Ozu or like Basan pictures because Jarmusch, like Jim Jarmusch saw those movies for him, you know. 
I never wanted to do that with stuff like this, but like that's kind of what I ended up doing. And but yeah, when I was well, I mean, it, Kautsky read it, and you know, right? Kautsky read this guy, and that guy read it. But but because I read the people that he influenced, because I think you know, this is clearly something that this is really somebody that's that's very influential, probably above you know, maybe what their notoriety is, at least, you know, maybe in the United States or whatever, you know, I, when it gets to, when it would get to its points of what the point was, I felt like it was something I'd heard already. It's almost boilerplate in a way because yeah, so much of this inspired, yeah, like uh, David Harvey and that whole kind of field of this stuff. But that also came down like through the situationists as well, who uh, tried to apply these things and, like I, I want some more immediate sense and also, you know, through like the realm of aesthetics at first is too. So, well, we end up with something kind of unique in that it's like, it's explicitly trying to renew humanism. It has a big Hegelian influence, but it's also structuralist in Marxism, Hegelian slash humanist, which in Marxism mean the same thing for some reason and structuralists are usually enemies. This is a text that is emphatically both. Yeah, so a little bit about this guy, I guess. Basically, he, he was somebody who sort of slipped in and out of academia um, early on in his career. You know, he, eventually he was in the PCF, which he joined in 1928, and then he was in the French Resistance. And he eventually goes into like sociology after the war in the early 60s. His first, I think his, what was his first big thing? It was the critique of everyday life. That's probably the thing of his that might be the most well known. Uh, oh, okay. He wrote that? Yes. Yeah, I read Where's that. Him? Whereas okay. Vonaheim wrote Revolution of Everyday Life, which is, I think, maybe partly why I felt like I'd read this already. Yeah, um, you're right. I didn't read it. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Okay, great. Critique of Everyday Life, Revolution of Everyday Life. Right. Got it. Seemed to really observe the post-World War II, that interregnum between where there's the World War, the Axis War, and then there's the Cold War. And it seemed like some of the more optimistic people thought that maybe there could be some kind of positive, peaceful coexistence as opposed to the right. uh, long war of attrition that followed, um, which maybe kind of explains like the tone of some of his stuff. But eventually uh, he gets more into this idea of like the production of space and examining like the relationship that like space has to, at least in the beginning of this text, like, Forget about just class struggle, just like history. Like this thing begins almost with a kind of like quasi, like would we could you describe it as a phenomenological account of like the development of like cities, like through history, and the city as like this kind of ideal space that reflects like the modes of production that it, it was that it uh, existed within, and like shaped the way people like, conceptualize uh, not only their relationship to each other but the universe and shit. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, am I way too stoned right now? Does this make sense? No, no, no. That that makes sense, and it's weird to say this, right? Because we usually we usually associate this kind of historical materialism with like official Marxism or with structural Marxism, but not really so much humanist and Hegelian kind of Marxism. They tend to resent the historical materialist elaboration a little bit. Where this is like kind of doing both, you know, mid-century Marxist superposition. 
<laughs> so, and that's weird. The yeah. interesting thing about Henri Lefebvre is that he, the way that he lays out his arguments, um, you know, in uh, like production of space in, in particular, there isn't, there is no real like strict defining line between people and the spaces they inhabit. They are co-constitutive in his uh, analysis. Like they don't, they don't exist as separate entities. There's no like people over here and the means of production and the spaces in which they occur in. They occur together and are created by each other, air horns dialectically, which is, which is a big part of the reason why um, like his, his ideas and, and his, his sort of like philosophical reasoning got picked up by people like, David Harvey in in like the Anglosphere and by like a bunch of weird anarchists who and a lot of liberals like liberals really they don't it doesn't seem like they read Henri Lefebvre directly but they were really influenced by him probably by political geographers like David Harvey who who then took up this idea of like a recommoning uh there's a there's a good book by Stavros Stavridis, who's a Greek-ass Greek dude, who wrote um, Common Spaces, the production of something or other, something, something, uh, which I actually talked about on a different podcast that is basically um, picking up the sort of theories of the way people inhabit, inhabit spaces and like the different like spheres and mode of spatial production and the ways in which people relate to that. So there's there is a huge body of tradition that that sort of like springs out from Henri Lefebvre, which is the reason why I kind of wanted to to get get hit one of his works on this show. Yeah, this definitely felt like reading French theory. I'm not sure exactly if it's like did they all write this or or was this like influential in a way that like caused other people to write like this? So from what I'm reading, first of all. <laughs> One of his doctoral students was Jean Baudrillard. Um, yeah, I saw that. So there's that. But also, he was interpreted as a big critic of structuralism and a a more actual critical force on the French Communist Party than Althusser. And he was crit- critical of Althusser, which I found kind of... I mean, it makes sense because he's got that Hegelian edge, but he's not... I mean, unless I've read this very wrong... <laughs> Like, he doesn't seem to be denying the structuralist mode of analysis, but he's weaving it, he's weaving it into the dialectic. Is that fair? Do you see that, Tiberius? Or am I, like, misreading it? Is he trying to characterize structuralism as bad? Because there's just some times where he's like, yeah, we have this, like, new mode of seeing the whole thing. Other people, they try to see the whole thing, but, like, they're, like, wrong and bad and partial. But see, we can see the whole thing because we're Hegelians, right? Yeah, Part there's, of our there's new a method. sense in which he's like looking at like the the structural structuralist philosophers and tradition and going, okay, but like no, but also yes, and then like going <laughs> off in in like a weird French direction with it. He was also um, interesting to note, uh, really influential on uh, Jean Paul Sartre and. Um, like that whole tradition of francophone batshittery. Okay. 
No, that, that makes quite a bit of sense. Just like from reading his description, I wouldn't have expected him to react to just literally just the nuts and bolts of what structuralism is. Considering that you sort of have a new way of reasoning because you're analogizing to a text. After a while, he abandons the notion of the text for the oeuvre, you know, like the basically the collection of works of art. That's the French word for like, I don't know, all the albums somebody made or all the paintings they made or some shit. Instead of focusing on the text, you fo you know, this it's the city as this collection of works or something. Uh, obviously that could use a little unpacking. It's kind of an opaque concept, <laughs> but like my point being that that's very analogous to the structuralist stuff that he's describing it right in the beginning. Right. Right. But the other thing to note about him and like the, the intellectual tradition that he comes out of, it's not like he came into post-structuralism. He was part of like the avant-garde moving from structuralism into post-structuralism. That actually makes the most sense that this is like a vanguard of post-structuralist text. Right. And he also hated Foucault. So, you know, bonus points in my book. <laughs> yeah, I read that too. The fact that, you know, I don't know, it's by the very fact of the word, you know, post-structural, you know, if you're incorporating elements while sort of critiquing the tradition, which I didn't see that strong of a critique here, honestly. But anyway, the point is, he was weaving in stuff that you don't normally see in structuralism. It makes and it makes a lot of sense for a Marxist in this period to become fascinated with urbanization, because you know the the cycles of you know revolutions that took place you know in Marx's lifetime and you know certainly informed his view of like what a revolution is. Uh, was based around cities, urban by nature, and so was like the early sequence of like revolutions at the beginning, you know, of the century. One of the problematics that would develop is that that I think he's responding to is a revolution just can't be like winning a series of cities. You have to like figure out how to integrate things like across this kind of national space. And the other thing is, of course. And this, there's especially a lot of like cultural anxiety about this in France, was the emergence of kind of the American like post-war uh, population, you know, distribution or whatever you can call it, suburbanization, which you know was hitting suburbanization and like kind of modernization uh, around the corporate realities of you know like you know post-war capitalism that was coming to France. And that's something there was a lot of anxiety about. I remember. So there's a Godard film, uh, two or three things I know about her, where a lot of it is about kind of the, a lot of, this, a lot of stuff that's happening within the film. I wouldn't call it subtext exactly, maybe symbolism. Whatever it is Godard does. A lot of it is anxiety about precisely that. And I believe the last shot of the movie, if memory serves, is like a bunch of like uh, grocery store commodities arranged like in like a city kind of shape. And it's like, this is the future, you know? You know, all this shit is coming here, and you see you see the same kind of anxiety in Baudrillard, and it, why he's so obsessed with like Disneyland and uh, oh yeah, what America has produced. Um, the food is better, right? Right, point. and it also makes sense with the French, especially because you know, and especially if they're 
uh, in or around Paris because of the history of the uh, the modernist urbanist movement that really got kicked off in the uh, in the Hausmann period. You know, after oh my god, you just you guys just did a reading on it, fucking Bonaparte. Mm. Oh yeah, that 18 premier. Yep. He Coincidentally, I always confuse uh, the French Revolution historian Lefavre with, with this guy. They have the same last name. You were saying, Jake. Let's see. So yeah, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book, he provides this kind of overview of the development of like urban society. It seems more skewed towards like Europe. One of the things that he kind of notes about early industrialization is that basically like the early earliest industries tended to more emerge like near immediate natural resources or like the means of transport of said resources so basically you know in coal mines or rivers and then but the, with the cities kind of remaining these like centers of finance that grew out of medieval mercantilism and then eventually you get like the industrial city where the city itself moves closer to the urban centers and becomes like a part of it and all of this is basically yeah him sort of setting the stage or trying to explain like because he's fascinated by urbanity because he feels like what he basically says is proletarianization is not um, useful because it like immiserates people and that's why they fight proletarian proletarianization is useful insofar as it urbanizes people and it's this urbanization and the, the mode of life like the city fosters in people and the kind of uh, yeah the kind of society and the kind of social exchange that happens there that creates you know these revolutionary subjects and so he's trying to recover that right because it isn't so much a departure from like the the traditional marxist framework of proletarianization as it is just a like a restatement of it from a different point of view um, yes yeah he's applying it to like a different field and trying to figure out yeah how to the space like he talks about how i forget when it was uh but sort of following like a sequence of uprisings in paris there was this push by the managing bourgeoisie to do a massive redesign and like widen these streets and like clear out, mm -hmm. clear out all of these ghettos and how this is something that the situation is point to quite frequently as well and how you know yeah there's a very clear class strategy behind this for like the rule and management of people which i think is part of what fosters this suspicion that yeah you know like the way this stuff is set up has like a concrete effect on people and so the living arrangements that a social system produces will to a certain extent inevitably serve to reinforce those said relations so you have to examine the space yeah angles famously when discussing like the limits of a insurrectionary strategy pointed to the widening of the streets to make them less vulnerable to barricade and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And to allow, you know, bigger kind of war machines to roll through. I mean, I'm extrapolating a little bit and that's like stuff that the situationists like really seized onto, but it's in pretty much his like last important work, which is that introduction to class struggles in France that the SPD like chopped off all the insurrectionary stuff of <laughs> yeah. and just kept the stuff about working in the state and circulated. 
Right. Yeah. And yeah, that was that was precisely the the Houseman period. And that was that was explicitly the goal of what Houseman was doing in basically redesigning Paris. You know, looking at like, oh shit, all of these like poor people uh have all of these ways of like stymieing uh modern soldiers and militias to you know take the city for themselves away from us and so we need to we need to widen these boulevards to allow for the movement of artillery and that kind of stuff but one of the things that lefebvre points out is that what was not an explicit goal but was the the real effect of what happened was that it it didn't it didn't really open up the space for like military defense as much like that wasn't that wasn't really like the actual effect of what it did what it actually did was to open up the space for commerce it it redesigned uh the city and reformed the city around the the exchange of commodities you know and and to um provide space for people to buy and sell and uh like participate in in the economics of uh modern urban life the the cafes and bistros and these kinds of things that was a lot of the city was demolished in order to give it over to those and then for those big wide boulevards they became the sort of like arterial lanes of the the movement of goods and commodities throughout the city more efficiently yeah this is what he calls neo-capitalist cities which is i guess lines up with uh, like i don't know real subsumption as a phase of capitalism kind of frog way of seeing things yeah i mean this is a thing that runs i mean you even get this kind of shit in like from the fucking uh, coming insurrection people <laughs> you know um, this concern about, yeah. you know, the uh, subjection of like the city itself to the commodity form, and it just kind of becomes like another commodified experience, right? Like it becomes, it becomes, a, it's it's French people getting pissed about tourists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he is you know, pretty pissed <laughs> off about tourists. No, that actually makes a lot of sense of it because the insistence is that first of all there is an ideological way in which people invoke like ancient Greece or something to talk about the contemporary city. He doesn't want to do that. Let's critique that. On the other hand, he does think his reference point is the middle ages, that a city can be this like artful shaping of human life. And that there's something of a, ironically a use value to the medieval, like mercantile cities that is the priority and it's to be a beautiful thing. And then capitalism does its thing and, you know, repurposes the cities and redesigns them for exchange value. But there's still that core there. And that's probably, he's only talking about Europe because American cities aren't like that, right? Like American cities are just like, in his view, you saw you incarnate off the bat. And I mean, Right. Well, they have they have cities there that are thousands of years old, whereas like in the United States, you know, and you can see this in the way it's laid out, usually depending like the newer cities will be more car based and will be more spread out, 
the older cities will be more condensed. Uh, you can feel this when you go to an old ass city. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that obviously, yeah, maybe there is like some, because it's not, it doesn't start out subsumed to capital that there's, uh, there's space to resist subsumption within maybe the European city that like American cities don't quite have. It's not quite the same thing. Um, but at the same time, that's also a thing that, you know, he talks about this. There's a global phenomenon where for a while, at least like the urban is kind of at the center of capital's universe, but then that changes because capital becomes global and like the city just becomes, you know, subordinated to the, you know, the giant octopus. Right. Spaces for the production of consumption and this, the consumption of products, which is why he has that, um, that, that sort of, uh, dialectic tension going on between the city as product and the city as oeuvre well and i mean this you know this is great because this is a this is a bomb bong rip framework through which to think about things because especially in the situation where you know thanks to like extensive means of transport and like wild wide uh, widening wealth inequality you know the richest people have this kind of network of like global uh, separate spaces and infrastructure that they navigate like around the world. And it's not something that maps as simply as like, here's the rich side of town. Here's the poor side of town, right? The spaces that like the rich inhabit now, it's like this own world within the world. And it's not, e there's massive discontinuities in terms of location, you know what I'm saying? And so like, because the, because the system as a whole is more complicated. Yeah. That's uh, critical theory for block by block, but in a way where like a, within one block you could have massive poverty and in like an exclusive you know bourgeois space that like yeah. in san francisco is like this it is like very i don't know jarring between space to space and it, it's more than block by block it's more like granular than that i mean it's definitely like that in florida like i, I like i drive around here sometimes and you'll you know, it'll be you'll be in, in the hood one second, and then the next block down, it's like brand new, you know, homes that were sold to fucking you know whoever. Like, right. and there, or they'll be you'll be driving through like wooded air, like swampland, and then all of a sudden you'll be in the middle of like the downtown from Back to the Future. He has his whole thing about segregation of basically everybody, uh, and he he does this thing where he talks about like ghettos of wealth and leisure and stuff like that, and it's like that's kind of a I don't like the use of that, and like that it just doesn't feel right to be using that word in the way that he's using it. But he's pointing at something that is, I think, like real, uh, because that was the the entire sort of modernist urban movement that came out of places like uh, like New York. Uh, and the the northeast of the United States and mostly the Anglophone world, the the utopian cities of the future where everything is sort of like sectioned off into these like productive blocks. Uh, you know, he talks about like the way that he talks about how the uh, the medieval cities and ancient ruins and stuff like that are lusted over nostalgically, but they are segregated off as places of like leisurely consumption for for wealthy tourists and that kind of stuff yeah actually i have i think i have a section where he talks about this um it's from page 140 
Uh, it says there are unquestionably strong tendencies in all countries opposing segregationist tendencies. One cannot say that the segregation of groups, ethnic groups, social strategy, and classes comes from a constant uniform strategy of the powers, uh, nor could one, nor that one should see it in the efficient projection of institutions or the will of political leaders. And yet, even where separation of social groups does seem to be partially evident on the ground, such a pressure and traces of segregations appear under ex under examination. The extreme case, last instance, the ghetto. We can observe that there are several types of ghetto. Those of the Jews and the blacks, uh, and those of the worker intellectuals or workers in their own way, residential areas. Residential areas are also ghettos. High status people, because of wealth or power, isolate themselves in ghettos of wealth. Leisure has its ghettos. Whenever an organized action is attempted to mix social strategy and classes, a spontaneous decantation soon follows. The phenomenon of segregation must be analyzed according to various indices and criteria: ecological, formal, urban, and sociological. Yeah. It's tough to quote him because everything unfolds like to the next thing, you know. You don't know when to like get off the, when to get off the get, uh, track. Get off the ride, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get off Mr. Lefebvre's wild ride. Well, yeah, I, he's quite right that this is not just a you know top-down imposed tendency. I mean, especially if you're talking about rich people, and he's using ghettos in a fucking critical theory troll way. It seems like to talk about like. Isolation. I can see why that makes you uncomfortable, Tabor. It seems like usage of the word that I'm not used to. Well, like, when someone says of Jews and the blacks. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, France. This is I mean, at least he didn't France, say Negroids, yeah. which I've actually read from other French people. Frogs. Yeah. yeah. Fucking frogs. Frogs and a frog. Well, you know, we'll give him a nice Girl Scout cookie for not saying that. Although I don't care. I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, I remember that time that like Bernie Sanders got in trouble for saying ghetto. He's like trying to say like, you know, like under underprivileged young people growing up in a ghetto. <laughs> you know, and people got mad. And that's but that. that's that's stupid. Ghetto's real. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, why lie like, about like, poverty anyway? I think the word just like, like makes people uncomfortable for some reason. I don't know, maybe because it's like one of those words that like urban that it becomes like another word for like derogatory yeah. word for you know black people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. Like, it's it makes people uncomfortable, and yeah, I think I don't know. It m makes people think about poverty in the way like race is mixed into poverty, yeah, or whatever. This brings up a bunch of things they can't handle. Got to cope. Um, Lips gonna live. Lips gonna live. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Like, you could do rational choice simulations and have and dial in the racism to make people not even that racist. And even among people that have like, you know, economic like parity, a certain amount of segregation just sort of generates, like it just sort of like will by chance happen. And like people don't even have to be that like have, you know, like racist preferences in order for that to happen. So it's not, it's not surprising that that occurs not only like obviously by economics, but within economic, like within like flavors of economic, like uh, when I, when I lived in Berkeley, there was a place where the intellectuals and like, you know, humanists and shit lived like, and of course there were like college students moving into, but like the neighborhood had some, you know, sort of pretentious, like self-identity about it. Yeah. Well, and there's like, there's just the basic like process of gentrification, right? It's like when rich people live somewhere, right. the property values go up, you know, it's because, it's like having when you have money, your money makes more money. 
right? It's it's like wherever they go, it's gonna it's gonna raise it's gonna raise the prices on shit, and that's gonna price out people who are poor. It's you know it it's pretty simple, and uh like and that's that's another like like element of thought here is just talking about like the commodic the commodification of like living space to the to the extent in the way that it is you know like we're in like another period now where there's like this real estate boom it's like pricing people out of like living you know fucking anywhere i read right. an article about they're 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 building like 300 square foot apartments out of like out of uh shipping containers and they're charging like $1300 for people to load them this is where i live like it, it gets insane and so it's something that i think another reason why i think stuff like this is something that people are Definitely, it definitely generates interest at this point, you know, because it's, it's something that's a uh, relates to people's not only like subjective experiences, but like material realities they deal with. Okay, but what if we monetize the rot? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, yeah, that's what that's what they're doing. That's what we're all, you know, that's exchange high. Oh, well, I, I was gonna pull some like uh periodization of uh, because calls like, Let's like do the that. three acts of the drama of the city. This is from what chapter is this from? Industrialization and urbanization. And it goes okay. So first period, industry and the process of industrialization assault and ravage pre-existing urban reality, destroying it through practice and ideology to the point of expiriating it from reality and consciousness. Led by a class strategy, industrialization acts as a negative force over urban reality. The urban social is defined is denied by the industrial economic. Second period, in part juxtaposed to the first. Urbanization spreads and urban society becomes general. Urban reality, in and by its own destruction, makes itself acknowledged as socioeconomic reality. One discovers that the whole society is liable to fall apart if it lacks the city in centrality. An essential means for the planned organization of production and consumption has disappeared. Third period, this is the last one, one finds or reinvents urban reality, but not without suffering from its destruction in practice and thinking. One attempts to re restitute centrality. Would this suggest that class strategy has disappeared? This is not certain, it has changed. To the old centralities, the decomposition of centers, it substitutes the center of decision making. So what, 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 do we, what do we make of that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> there, are, there are some sec sections of it where it's just like, I, I don't think I can actually like listen to someone talk about it. I have to like read it a couple of times and be like, okay, yeah. that's what's happening here. Yeah, that, yeah, that's fair. Um, let me take a stab at this. Okay. Okay, so I feel like, okay, so maybe he's, okay, so first period, he's basically talking about where industry starts moving closer to city centers. And then second period, He's basically talking about like the sequence, the cycles of like urban revolutions that took place late 19th, early 20th century. And the third period is the period he's writing in, where the city, where the urban has been decentered, and it needs to be recentralized in order for like a coherent class strategy to be possible. So I guess I kind of already summarized that earlier. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's basically going through the the uh, the, the cycle of history. Uh, of capitalism where it basically destroys the old sits it sits and wallows in the destruction while it commodifies it and then goes oh shit there are actually some segments of the old that we actually still need so let's reintroduce those but on our terms there's a part later where he really rails against uh, developers these are the people who lead like these different projects of like urban renewal where there's this campaign to 
basically like redesign any set like center or section of a city in order to rent it uh, more profitable profitable basically right yeah that's the um the the capture uh the capture and commodification of space the the kind of um you know he talks about the the top down of state capitalism versus the bottom up of capitalist firms the developers and the planners and the architects are coming at it from from a top down perspective where they are going to dictate to society how society will function through these like rigid forms where you know the bottom up is basically um capital acting through uh the the process of like schumpeter's creative destruction in the in the the birth death and rebirth cycle of of industry and of the the firm that sort of creates new spaces uh but still on capitalist terms and like the places where the places where they meet are like the actual lived reality of people within the urban environment. I'm happy he uses the term state capitalism here because I always find it awkward and people try to argue that things without markets are state capitalists because they have a bourgeois state form. Whereas like when you're looking at urban planning in the 1960s, you really do have a state capital nexus. That's really important. And like, uh, I don't know. It's better than what most people mean by state capitalist, basically. Right, and yeah, he's uh, you. You brought up the the neo capitalist thing earlier. He he kind of uses neo capitalism and state capitalism almost interchangeably. Okay, so for him, it's this like more active reconstructionary period of the post war order into the time of which he's writing, which was transformed at, by you know an active state, but not quite as much. It would be, although not in the direction anybody thought. Should we just go over like his theses on the city? Uh, yeah, I think it might be helpful because, you know, at risk of sounding rude to our guest and patron, thank you, the writing style and the, the claims to explanation that are common to Hegelianism and structuralism are like a personal troll, the way that I approach Marxism. <laughs> I mean... And if I'm making an unfair characterization, characterization, please let me know. But like his his ends are, are very like, I don't know, noble and humanistic and recognizing what's wrong with humanism at the same time because he's responding to structuralists. But like, damn, this, uh, you know, like Hegelians and structuralists b- both believe that they see the big picture in a way that other people don't because they have a special mode of explanation. And actually, you know, for the most part, prefer... Hegelians to structuralists because the writing style isn't as like, I don't know, the writing style is prettier. You know what I mean? But yeah. 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 I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) Especially like if you look at chapter 17, where he sort of like lays out like the, the summary bullet points of his argument, it really isn't that complicated. It's pretty. It's actually fairly straightforward. Like the path that he gets there in in sort of like proving out his argument, gets kind of bong rippy and like <laughs> super French. And you kind of like, gotta wonder, like, what could this guy have accomplished if if he had like a functioning language to work with? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. 
Yeah, there's a point where he says that he's going to define the city with more rigor, right? And then he proceeds to like just fucking waffle between different ways defining a city. It's like a text until he reaches Uber. It's you, you know we're, we've been promised like a whole new way of explaining. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean it's a it's a page that has no more space to write on. Like I I don't see what's so complicated about that. Yeah, this <laughs> meme brought to you by Germanic language gang. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reviewing, I'm reviewing these theses, but I'm not sure. If, the problem is, like, it's it's at, at points, it's kind of a very like abstruse argument. So it's like we, it's hard to be like, well, I like I like one and three, but I don't know about two. <laughs> you know. Well, I but no, but I kind of do like number fourteen. I feel like number fourteen has the most like engagement with philosophical content, like in a positive way, kind of like laying out its stakes. You know, yeah, stuff 14. with this. Yeah, um, the right to the city, the, the the titular, the eponymous chapter. You know, the the one where it's trying to get over the Greek and Latin Judeo-Christian ideology, the liberal bourgeoisie, to make a real, you know, urban humanism. That is in in a sort of conversation with Nietzsche, but the real product of the Ubermensch, you know, whatever Nietzsche thought was coming, was actually pretty disappointing, and so. <laughs> And so, like, there needs to be something that can do that. And so this summarizes what I love and hate about this, right? Because I do think the end goal is, is stated, like, poetically and well and is, is the right goal. We want to be able to leverage, you know, urban planning and the new man to sort of re revitalize humanism, make it something really, you know, that provides like this, you know, city is use value, whatever to everybody, like the right to the city. So conceived is cool. You want people to have all the, you know, the benefits and resources of living in an advanced society without without really like proletarianizing them. <laughs> That's a noble goal. That's there's something, you know, that does get to the essence of communism there because spreading the proletarian condition is not to eliminate it kind of doesn't make any fucking sense. And there's a way in which it makes zero sense, but you do want everyone to be able to experience what a minority of people get to experience right now. And um, there's a discussion of, you know, working classes being priced out of the city, unable to, you know, exercise their right to the city um, and not the city in terms of, you know, the fucking, neo-capitalist hellscape but the city has this like big you know not just art project but you know body of art projects by so many people right that's his dichotomy between the habitat and to inhabit right the habitat is a place where you just park people the hab habitat is is where you uh, is is where you exist for the purpose of commodity consumption and production. To inhabit a space is to is to not only like sort of like live in it, but to be like an integral part of it. When when you inhabit a space, the the space is a reflection of you in the same way that you are a reflection of the space that you inhabit. 
like at its fundamental core, the right to the city is basically the the right to exist within an environment that you have some control over by dint of you actually just existing within it. There, there is a kind of um, like a democratization of it. And, th- and that's why he, he gets into like the, uh, oh, by the way, this is socialism. But what kind of socialism? The good kind, you know? Yeah. I mean, he talks a little bit too about how, you know, there's like people who live in like, you know, like I think was more or less like public housing or, you know, like social housing. And then there's the people who have like moved, become homeowners and like moved into, you know, like a home where they tend to like their little space or whatever, which kind of reminded me of like that, like old George Carlin bit about stuff or whatever. That's all your house is. Your house is just a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much goddamn stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. That's all your house is. It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You see that when you take off in an airplane and you look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. Everybody's got their own pile of stuff. You know, I gotta put my stuff here. I put some stuff here. I put this stuff over here. Let's say you're going to go to Honolulu. You're going to go all the way to Honolulu. You got to take two big bags of stuff. Plus your carry-on stuff. Plus the stuff in your pockets. You get all the way to Honolulu and you get in your hotel room and you start to put away your stuff. That's the first thing you do in a hotel room is put away your stuff. I'll put some stuff in here, put some stuff down there. Here's another place for some stuff here. I'll put some stuff over there. You put your stuff over there. I'm putting my stuff over here. Here's another place for some stuff. Hey, we got more places than we've got stuff. We're going to have to buy more stuff. Like it, and how that's yeah. kind of, it, it, it creates like for those people, this illusion, you know, that like they're there and then the people in social housing have this weird contradictory view where at one, they all want, they all want to be homeowners, but they're also all, if you pull them and ask them if they like where they live, they say they do. And so there's this kind of, what does he say? He says, um, you know, like people represent themselves by what they are lacking or what they believe to be lacking in this relationship. Like the imaginary has more power. So it's, you know, it's kind of like the Lacanian thing where like the other always has like the shui sauce or whatever. Um, and just how this like this kind of a, this like social arrangement is like this kind of uh, yeah this sort of like false yeah just kind of like this false arrangement that like just generates envy, right? Yeah, because he has that thing about the estates versus the uh, the the detached owner occupied housing, uh, which is which is kind of why I like the way that the theoreticians, if you want to call them that, of the commoning movement sort of took that idea and kind of ran with it and really reframed it in a way that I think makes a lot more sense because a lot of the way that the way that people within bourgeois economic form think about space is that you have private space and you have public space. Uh, But both of those are like fundamentally economic spaces, right? There's uh, they kind of like go back to the 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 Greek pulling from the Greek um, ideas of the oikos versus the polis. The oikos being the being like the the private family unit, uh, the the domain of like the master of the house, where production happens, where the economy happens, where the space is like owned and controlled patriarchally. Uh, and then you have the polis, which is a 
it's a it's a negotiated space. It is it is a space of politics of equals meeting each other and not not having the the sort kind of like dominant relationship over one another. It is it is a space that is created by the existence of the people within it. And when you uh, under the the commoning sort of theoretical framework, when you when you take that into the capitalist age, the oikos is everything. Um, you know, both public and private are the domains of the oikos, the economic. They are owned uh, patriarchally and controlled patriarchally, which is why they have not two categories but three. They have the the private, which is the the pure domain of the capitalist they have the public which is the domain of the state which in a bourgeois economic form is is controlled by the capitalist but as a class instead of individually uh, and then you have the commons which are spaces that are are fluid which are sort of have an have an organic dimension to them they aren't imposed they are created by um, like collective negotiations of the people within them, however formally or informally that happens. And so, which is why I, I kind of like his, like, you can see the sort of like kernel of this idea in the way that he talks about like the owner occupied housing versus like the estate housing, right? They're both, they both have the same kind of flavor of the, the oikos within them. And they are not, tr neither are, are social negotiated spaces of the oeuvre, right? I've always kind of wondered sort of what thinking in this framework would have made. I was, I was reading this book a long time ago about um, like the favelas, like particularly like in Brazil and Latin America, and how they kind of just, uh -huh. they basically emerged around the city. They were basically literally just built like essentially like encampment settlements that are just kind of built out of like found materials over time. If you look at them, they are kind of these like self-created unregulated like housing constructions that are, you know, basically made by like, you know, like working poor and lumpen people that, you know, like literally surround like the cities in some parts of South America. And it's like, I, I always thought, you know, with some of what the situationists were talking about, because they would have these ideas of, you know, like cities would be these things that like sprawl out and people would like, you know, make them modify them themselves, like in real time and shit like that. But it's like that the closest like actually existing model that would be those like unregulated, uh, you know, spontaneously built and negotiated cities. But you know, far from being a utopia, it's like you know, it's it's a uh, like in right. like gang infested hellscape that uh you know is subject to all kinds of like insane like petty rentier schemes <laughs> where you know like people who are hyper exploited or found a way to find somebody even more hyper exploited that they can you know like rent out like a tiny ass space to for an insane amount of money <laughs> and so i don't yeah i mean so it's like um having like more control like having control over your space i think epiphenomenal of like the workers controlling the means of production generally you know um but yeah if you if you don't have like the resources that of the urban you know what i mean and you just have that you know, like direct management of your 
extreme poverty. I think that's the reason that, you know, he goes so far to try to like, well, okay, I'm using this word in a way that that's not what it means normally. Like there's so many parts where he's like doubling. He's not going to change the way he talks because why do that? If you want people to understand you, but you know, sort of assisted using a special way. So it just, I don't know. It sits weird. Because, well, a, big yeah. part, a big part of like the continental philosophy tradition is you kind of invent your own vocabulary, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it just takes a while to absorb it, which I don't feel like I've done. Otherwise I would probably use his, try and use his terminology more in framing his ideas, but. Nah, fuck his terminology. Yeah. I, I mean, I, honestly, <laughs> I feel, how do I put this? Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with like, using your own sort of like vocabulary and, and spin but then you know it's just up to you to like communicate your ideas i mean if you read I mean, scene from the window like he actually does have a really beautiful writing style when he's not being super french right i mean this which is, is kind of see which is kind of just unfortunate uh scene from the window is is basically the um it, it's a it's a short little essay that he wrote while looking out from his apartment window over an intersection in Paris. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, it's actually I in writings on the cities. Yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, lo-fi, lo-fi Lefebvre proto-post-structuralist study beats to chill, relax to 24 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, when if you want to get really bong rip, he does have a section which um, I can't seem to find right now where he talks about like, you know, he's talking about the the like science fiction visions of cities of the future that are mm. trying to like radically reimagine like what urbanity is like. It's from chapter fifteen, I think. Yeah, where he talks about like what the 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 sort of like ideal notion of what the right to the city is and and it it is a it is an aspatial place of like pure mobility where um where like the the world around you basically is infinitely pliable to 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 your needs and desires in the moment which gets really weird and bong rippy but i think there there is there is that kind of core in in it which the the situationists and the the commoners and a lot of people sort of kind of picked up on in in like what the right to the city like means this is like i feel like you know what actually uh i have an announcement uh you win uh, you win, not one step back, uh, Tiberius. Uh, this thing kicked my ass. You know? So, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. You definitely win. That, like, I remember there was one person that like bored us to tears, but everything else has been like perfectly engaging and like, and more or less in my comfort zone. Even the stuff I find really impressive that we've been recommended, that's in like my comfort zone. Like, you know, and I'm blown away by, I, I feel like I can, you know, talk about it. This one, I'm just like, damn, I have to be way higher. And now I am way higher. And well, I, 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 I've almost absorbed it. I've almost grasped the dialectic. Well, I mean, speaking of ripping bongs, 
Uh, I found the passage here. Okay, cool. So he says, to the extent that the contours of the future city can be outlined, it can be defined by imagining the reversal of the current situation by pushing to its limits the in this inverted image of the world upside down there are currently attempts to establish fixed structures equilibrium structures stability submitted to systemization and therefore to existing power at the same time there is a tactical wager on the accelerated obsolescence of consumer goods ironically known as durables the ideal city would involve the obsolescence of space an accelerated change of abode and placements and prepared spaces. It would be the ephemeral city, the perpetual oeuvre of the inhabitants themselves, themselves mobile and the perpetual oeuvre of the inhabitants themselves mobile and mobilized for and by this oeuvre. Time comes first. There is no doubt that technology makes possible the ephemeral city, the apogee of play and supreme oeuvre of luxury. Uh, uh, and supreme oeuvre and luxury. One can cite the World Exhibition in Montreal, among other examples in Montreal. See, which this... <laughs> go on. Which is just like, I mean, I get what he's, I get what he's trying to say. He's trying to, he's trying to spell out this idea of an idealized city where, where the inhabitants of it have a kind of supreme control over the space that they inhabit that that they can impress upon the they have the liberty to impress upon the world like their own image that that they have the kind of like control over their lives that they can actually like reshape their environment around this this notion of of play of art of of function in the moment and it's it is a it is a pliable and ever changing thing, but it's also just like, wow, how high did you get while you were reading science fiction, my dude? Yeah, well, and it's I mean, it's hard to what okay. So what's useful about this analysis is it's basically applying like this Hegelian, Marxian, Nietzschean framework to an error to a, a uh, to an axis of examining the social that has not been looked upon as much, right? And that's how he opens things up in terms of opening up this field. But the downside is, is that you can get to a point where you're abstracting it so much from like the broader like class and historical forces that could create any of these changes that, yeah, you're just like spinning off into like, you know, so like weird, abstruse, and utopian speculation, which is certainly interesting, but like how useful is this, right? Like this is, and you could see how this like spins out into guys like you know Baudrillard or whoever. Because okay, so he's at this point where he recognizes that like the city has been decentered and subsumed to capital, and urbanity is the thing that matters in the proletariat. But the urban has been stripped away. So what the fuck do we do? Right. Yeah. Because his like his recommendations on the project like the, the the way that he's thinking about the project is that there's this some kind of class entity like collective that could or could not do something that may or may not involve certain planning and state resources or maybe it doesn't i don't know here's a neat idea moving on yeah 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 <laughs> He does have a thesis about the economic. This calls for, this is the last thesis. This calls for, apart from the economic and political revolution, 
planning oriented towards social needs and democratic control of the state and self-management, a permanent cultural revolution. So that's a nice, you know, maltrot bomb right there, a permanent cultural revolution. But also, you know, I think, you know, this does situate itself and kind of hedging its bets on what socialism is. Um, yeah, it's uh it's a permanent cultural revolution, anti-revisionist, that's... revised pro, uh... <laughs> a, a minimalist, maximalist program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a world where space doesn't exist and time is the only thing that is real. I, I it, that's cool. That's a that's a real thing that could happen. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, because, like, in what sense would the proletariat not be alienated from, like, an urban space? Like, in what sense would they control it? Would you talk about, like, their immediate surroundings? Like, would, you know, uh, would they be able, if, like, I don't know, like, one of the traffic light was glitching, could you, like, pop open the controller and, like, fit, you know, fiddle around a little bit with the wires or whatever it is you would do to, you know, fix it? You know what I mean? Like, or would it, or would they control it collectively through some kind of, you know, like, uh, steerage and management that they would decide upon you know like a generalized course of things you know like what you know what, what does what, what what would he even mean by to say like the working class would like control its space in this way because again i could also see it being like again sort of like you know looking like the favelas or whatever where it's just like a shit show <laughs> i mean if you're talking about this text the answer is <laughs> okay. uh, but but like yeah, he never really. Uh, the the thing about Lefebvre is that he never really gets to that point. Like his his major contributions are just ways of thinking and philosophizing about what space is and means in human terms. Mm -hmm. Like he he shits on the the like human scale of of like structuralist modernist um planners and you know people who are basically working within and towards the the limits of of capital but never really going beyond it to to understand and to construct spaces that are actually human uh and Man, I had a point with this. Well, yeah, because he sees okay, yeah, because he sees like the proletariat as like remaking its society. Because you do get, you do sometimes see these figures that emerge thinking about this stuff. I forget who this guy was, but you know they have like this very, uh, almost like kind of like Taoist like outlook in terms of like um, how to develop like a harmonious like space that's like spiritually like nourishing to human beings to inhabit like on an urban level. But what there really is, they're basically just kind of like uh, designing like their own kind of uh, based on maybe their own like reflection about what they think people need as opposed to creating space for like the proletariat to decide for itself what kind of like space it wants to inhabit, you know, like as an urbanity or as, within a city. Um, so he is right that like there is like an irreducibly social dimension to this and you can't, yeah, you, you can't. In the same way that you like utopia is bad, you can't like write a prescription for exactly how you design urban space in like in a quote unquote humane way. Right, right, yeah, and and 
He is. He's. He's kind of pointing in that direction. But I, I remembered the point that I was going to say because I'm. I'm literally thinking out loud here. So my mm-hmm. mouth is moving faster than my brain at this point. Uh, but like his, his big contribution is just is is just putting down in writing in a formal and uh, methodological way, like the relationship between people and the spaces that they live in, and. And I think that if you if you want to have something um, like more practicable, if you want to think about like, OK, so we know that people in space are co-constitutive. Uh, what does that mean? What do we do with that? Like you 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 can't rely on Lefebvre for that. Like he he just never really got to that point, like even though he he lived like well into like the 80s and I think he died sometime in the 90s. Uh, he he never really moved to a point where he was engaging with that kind of project. Like he he basically got lost in in you know May seventy or May sixty eight. <laughs> like there there's there is a sense in which like it, it just kind of stopped at that point, and and other people took it up and and really started grappling with okay what what is what is a space that is created by and for people the working class what what does a space created in use value mean in a in a post capitalist world and like you really have to go for uh what i think is is fairly described as like the utopianist project of the commons if there's one if there's one thing that he's definitely weighing in on it's that dressing up the best utopian instincts of human beings in lab coats and pretending it's not utopian is like pretty much the worst thing you could do here in his point of view, which is an obvious slight against what, you know, the self-conception of Marxists as scientific socialists that are, I'm pushing away the utopia. I'm the cool minded, like critic of other people's attempts to do socialism. I'm not going to posit anything. It's rare that critical theory does that. Critical theory usually has at its heart some abstraction from the pretension of scientific socialism to not put anything forward and feel real smug about it. I'm not saying he actually puts like forward anything that's very concrete. I, I think reading this text, I'm definitely... That does it. I'm just going to go get a math degree. Like, I have to. Like, just <laughs> after, after reading this... I'm, I'm just going to do as much math as possible because I, need, I think, feel like math is the opposite of this. And not that this is, is terrible. I mean, the ends that he's writing for are clearly like, first of all, he's writing in 1967, right? Like, this is not my 68 yet. This is what was in the air, which inspires my 68, articulating something really alive and vital before it even comes to fruition. And then dies horribly. Oh, could you fill us in on that? Oh, I mean the the entire situationist project, which is kind of the the living embodiment of the ethos that I think he's he's hinting at in this book, like really dies in my sixty eight. That was kind of their, that was kind of their big their big shot, mm. and uh, yeah. but it's interesting, like the like you know the board at least just kind of places everything on like the the. Form, formation of workers councils once the workers form councils 
you know, all this stuff is good, all this crap's going away. But it just it didn't uh, it didn't happen. Apparently, he wrote like a hit piece on uh, dialectical materialism or something. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's a hit piece, but you know, he was certainly a critique of. He's certainly a critic of the Stalinist version of dialectical materialism. And I do think oh, no, that it was, it was absolutely a hit piece. It was actually, the, I believe it okay, was the yeah. thing that got him kicked out of the PCF. Okay. That's super interesting. So there's, okay. So reading over this, a critique of Hegel's dialectic, historical materialism, dialectical materialism, unity of the doctrine. All right. So yeah, if, if, I mean, if he's doing, if he's carrying on this like Marxist, Chris, you know what? Like this guy seems smarter than a lot of, um, how do I put this? A lot of Hegelian Marxists, because a lot of Hegelian Marxists are like, yeah, Hegel introduced Hegel and Marx's method. We don't really get Marx's method, so Hegel and Marx are the same thing. Um, <laughs> like people, they wouldn't say that, but you know, the way one analyzes for Lefavre, like he is trying. I don't know. I don't think he does it successfully, but he at least acknowledges that you know there's an important like criticism of Hegel in Marx. <laughs> I feel like that's sometimes lost by. Yeah. I mean, you know, Lefavre beans is definitely, I think uh, an important stepping stone in, in ways of like reading Marx into, into like the, the material context that surrounds us. Which is why, like, you know, I said in I said in the Discord, he's he's my favorite frog sucker. And and this is really the reason. Because like there's there's a lot of stuff about like reading French philosophers that is kind of fun, but is ultimately like, why the hell did I read this other than just <laughs> to like like artificially induce my brain to to just die? Like, <laughs> it's very, uh, it's there very a, difficult to yeah. to read a lot of these French philosophers and not just go like, "What the fuck? Why? Why are you even writing this?" And and that that has a kind of like fun hate read quality to it. But like, I I circle back around to Lefebvre a lot because like underneath all of that like Frenchery, there's I I think there's a real core of something that gets expressed in in ways i think that are both like lesser and better at the same time in people like harvey right because he's okay. the david harvey's tradition of like political geography is it really pulls uh from lefebvre this this idea of the the production of space and of people uh, as as being not distinct, right? And and there there is a way in which he kind of translates Lefebvre into like actual human readable English, but there it it, it almost feels like there's something that is getting like lost in a kind of economism when when that happens, and there there is a kind of there's a sense of a utopian project that is being hinted at in Lefebvre's work that you don't see when it gets when it gets translated in in the anglophone world yeah i could see that yeah i mean this reads more like 
you know, somewhere like the early Marx, uh, or it's maybe like Harvey is more fixated on like capital. Yeah. There's also a distinct Nietzsche and streak to this work. And I understand that he wrote a defensive Nietzsche against the Nazi interpretation that, you know, that's like a good service to philosophy. I can appreciate how, what a big influence he is on the situationists and like, that he's taking these positions at the times, you know, they need to be taken, like, need to be, I don't know. Nietzsche speaks to some problems of modernity that aren't totally summarized in Marxism very well and are, would be, you know, the jump off for a lot of the more existentialist, post-material kind of revolutionary desires that people had. I kind of want to read his critique of dialectical materialism because... You know, someone responding at the time to Stalin and, you know, who doesn't actually reject the category, it seems like. It seems like they would make a hardcore Marx turned on his head argument. I'm sorry, hardcore Hegel turned on his head argument. Um, reading a quote, more Hegelian than Hegel kind of argument. Because I've yeah, always his, thought that... His book, Dialectical yeah. Materialism, is, is a defense of dialectical materialism against Stalin, essentially. Because Stalin was an, an, an ignorant jackass. I know. He has a very narrow interpretation of it. Whereas, like, I do think that people that get something out of the worldview are doing something more imaginative than that. Even though there is... I mean, you know, even though there is some roots and angles for what Stalin is doing. All of them are working with metaphysics in their method, which is always dangerous. <laughs> Not that people are absent of metaphysics, but like with Hegelian stuff, it's, you know, it should be very explicit. That's what you're getting. There's an epistemological dimension, but that's not all. I'm going to go get a master degree now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and I should also mention, which I didn't at the, at the beginning of this, like the entire reason why I was sort of interested in this topic and in this oh, yeah. in particular is because I actually work as an architect and, uh, and I love how much he shits on architects because like, I yeah. feel that. like Le Corbusier, whatever his name is. Uh huh. Yeah. And especially yeah, when you're talking about like, modernist architects, like I, I love the aesthetics of, of modernism, particularly like mid century modernism and uh, brutalism. I just, like, oh my God, like the way that those people thought about the world is just like, wow, okay, no, I see why, I see why dictators love you people. <laughs> yeah. It's dirty, it's just, dirty buildings, though. It's the, used to. it's the building equivalent of, you know, Stanley Kubrick, like making someone do a take like 137 times. Yeah, because like, they're, they're the kind of guys who are just like, I know exactly how the world is going to be, and I'm going to shove you into this box until you conform to my world, because God damn it, you are going to love it. <laughs> Which, like, I don't know how to tell you otherwise, dude, but that doesn't work. That's a failed project it from the outset. And, and oh, man, that is something that architecture just has never gotten over. Ever. That kind of, like... I don't know, kitsch modernity, right? Is something that I think, I don't know, I'm almost close to, you know, 
agreeing with an echo of a primitivist argument that a lot of modernity is sort of like, I don't want to say crypto fascism, but it's like pretty close. Like it's, you know, sometimes like if there's a cult of great individual and artists and it's easy to see why the Nazi reading of Nietzsche strikes so many people as being the obvious like way to interpret him because of, you know, uh, the great artist, their, how effective they are and their, you know, their iron will to manifest something in the world. Yeah. I don't know. Right. It's like, it's the auteur theory of like urban society. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Fuhrer is just the social auteur, you know, this whole shit's about me. Yeah. And, and architects just like have, have such an inflated ego of like the importance of like their vision being imposed upon the world uh, that I just, I really love the fact that he hates architects. I, I appreciate it. Well, I think it's a good way to, a good place to leave it off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm going to leave people with anything, I would say, um, don't start with Lefebvre. Start with people who came <laughs> after him. And then if you're interested in it, go back and read Lefebvre because you're going to find a lot of really interesting and batshit things. And it's if, if you don't have a grounding in like the actually good concepts that came out of his work, like you're going to read the batshit stuff and go, why am I doing this to myself? No, I could definitely see how he how this spun off into a lot of different things, because uh, yeah, it, it he definitely opens up a lot of he opens up a lot of new ground, even if he doesn't have like the most like systematized or uh, uh, clear at a glance uh, exposition of it. You know, uh, but well, it, he it, actively it, disdains systematization because of the yeah. Nietzschean influence. Nietzsche has a quote that's something along the lines of you know systematizers you know or they lack uh courage or something there they're systematizers are a bunch of cucks don't trust them nisha like yeah it's one of his famous aphorisms direct quote yeah 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 um so yeah that's that's definitely there and to that i say okay well you know unfortunately like there's concepts are so hard to communicate without like systems of meaning that we've already kind of established and we don't have to like take because Tiberius you said that this the main the main ideas in this text could have been summarized in I don't know how many pages like three like, uh, yeah I mean th- this could have been like if, if you want to make it like flowery and more approachable this could have been like a 15 to 20 page pamphlet um, and instead, it's like his, literally his entire body of work is basically these points. That's it for this week. Thanks again for, to Tiberius for dropping in. One thing I want to mention that we didn't really get to in the episode was that, well, yes, both Debord and Vanaheim were students of Lefeub. Another prominent student of his and one listed on his wikipedia page is jean baudrillard which contextualizes baudrillard's work quite a bit you know you see in lefebvre's anxiety about the collapse of the urban and the 
aspect of urbanity and the proletariat. A multitude of responses. Basically, you get debored, gambling on some kind of outside spontaneous proletarian intervention. And then on the other hand, after the collapse of and the failure of May 68, you get Baudrillard's sense of the foreclosure of the social and his catastrophist nihilism. Um, which seems to me to both be for their times and places logical endpoints to the trajectory that I, or the sense that I got of Lefebvre's philosophy reading this piece. If you want to support the show, uh, hit up our Patreon, uh, like, subscribe. If you want to get hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or send us a message uh, through other channels. Uh, so until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.